I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of The Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from the Pavan from William Law's Royal Consorts, Set 9, which we used in our audiobook performance of John Milton's Comus, which is available on this podcast feed. That performance and this podcast are supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Killam Trust, York University, the Spearmin Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and individual donors. Our radio play style performance of Comus was directed by Heather Davies. I spoke to Heather via Zoom on the special challenges of the mask form, Milton's verse, and the rehearsal process in the time of COVID. Now, Heather, we were doing this as a sort of radio play, I guess we can call it. I don't think there's such a thing as a podcast play yet. Uh, so there's so no stage machinery or, uh, or blocking. You don't have to tell people which hand to open the door with. How does that change your approach as a director, first of all? I think the, one of the main things is that you still have to think of it in time and space even though the viewer isn't in the same room as the actors at that time. You know, the actors are, are living orally inside the listener, uh, inside the listener's brain. So you still have to think about spatial relationships and uh, how space and time works. So we did talk about blocking in terms of what microphone positions the actors would be at in different scenes. And, you know, we did play with space in the church when we have the day of recording. So that was definitely part of the process because they're still thinking about it in time and space as we do with all three-dimensional storytelling, sometimes also known as theater. And so what were some of the other challenges for your director? I mean, Comus is a mask, uh, not a play. So there's, the speeches are very long uh, and uh, there's it's less dramatic. There's like, you don't have to have dramatic bouncing lines, short lines off one another. Uh, with the speeches being long, how does a director help actors approach those big chunks of ideas? And what were the special challenges you found uh, in, in comparison to a play contemporary with it? So my job as a director really is just to consider how we tell the story. And that is a constant uh, theme and exploration, no matter what the genre is. With this play or this mask in particular, yes, the long speeches are definitely a challenge. How do we bring those to life? How do they feel spontaneous that people are making them up in this moment, these complex ideas, these incredibly long ideas, this extraordinary use of rhetoric? So that was a particular challenge for this piece. Another challenge in terms of the language was because these ideas are so complex, one can just get caught up in the language rather than continuing to think about story. What's the story that's being told at this moment? What is the relationship brother to brother, um, Comus to a captive, uh, the demon to the brothers, for example? So it's a real challenge with this piece to come back to this, the question of story again and again. Well, I'll talk more about the long speeches in a different way in a moment, I suspect. But that's the big challenge, I would say, at the forefront of the conversation about long speeches. Uh, in fact, it's not quite contemporary with Shakespeare, is it? Our, no. our actors have played Shakespeare, but that's 30 or 40 years 
earlier that Shakespeare yeah. would do. So there's a, there is a change in just a change in the way you build sentences. Uh, I think uh, yeah, towards the early Baroque. Absolutely, and I feel too. Yeah, moving towards the early Baroque, absolutely and completely. Also, with Milton being where he is in his own career and his development, I sort of feel that he's showing off. Like how look how fabulous I am. Look how complex I can be. Look the the fabulous long speeches I can write, and that he's sort of a his most effervescent, most kind of. Um, alive in his determination to show his brilliance. So that energy of the writer coming through when really one would hope that the the writer is thinking predominantly about how to present character. Well, we're in a different era. It's a different time. So the sense of character is completely different. So this relationship between the character and the writer in 1634, when he wrote this, I guess, it's a very thin, thin veil, you know, so I definitely feel as a director working on the piece that he's with us showing how brilliant he is at every, uh, at every moment. And, in, and indeed he's showing off how brilliant uh, the Edgerton children are and how brilliant the Edgerton household is with uh, the singing teachers giving these long uh, speeches and he's showing off not just himself, but showing off everybody as I think we're going to discuss with Deanne Williams. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. It, there is this incredible flavor of both celebration and showing off. You know, my children have mm-hmm. been to, to, you know, the, the contemporary equivalent would be my children have been to stage school and I, you know, <laughs> want to see how brilliant they are at, at Christmas time when they get up to perform for all of my family and friends. It, it does. Uh, we all know parents like that, I think, <laughs> don't we? Yeah. Absolutely. And you know what? Why not? You, know? you, you want to know that you're, the education that you're paying for has actually you know, got some value. So, you know, having, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be one of those children doing that play in front of that group of people. I'll tell you that much. But the sense of, yes, the, the prowess or the ability or the talent of the children is completely shining through, you know. My daughter's been attending you know, singing lessons, and so we will have her sing. You know, our sons mm-hmm, have been yeah. taking rhetoric classes, and so we will observe them being rhetorically brilliant, you know, along with Milton's words. Yeah, it's mm-hmm, great. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic when you know that. In fact, you just said you wouldn't want to be one of these kids memorizing these very long speeches. One of the actors said to me, you know, a very experienced actor who's done a lot of Shakespeare and theater, said of this piece, I'm glad I don't have to memorize it. Yeah, absolutely. It would be an extraordinary thing to have to memorize these incredibly long passages, 50 lines, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or so. But just also to get through the length of the, get through the length of them and continue the thought across them. Uh, absolutely. They're, they're kind of like arias, really. You know, the energy that's required to get through them, uh, what we call the complexity of the ideas, uh, what, you know, the energy and sort of the, the amount of mental space that the actor has to hold to go to complete the ideas, begin, introduce an idea, go through all these incredibly long sentences and then finally complete a thought is uh, an extraordinary skill. And so we spent a lot of time on on that and helping the actors with the long speeches. And really it comes down to this 
sounds like a very simple idea of one person talking to another and still this very simple concept in acting that my words need to affect you. You know, we speak to create change in others or change in ourselves to get something that we want. So we spent a lot of time picking through the words, picking through these massive long monologues to go back to those very simple grounded concepts of what is the person saying to the other person, even though it might be in a long extended thought. You know, how are they trying to affect the person that they're talking to? Uh, what do they need? Um, how are they trying to change the person they're speaking to? And what do they either need to win or how might they lose And um, if they don't get what they want? And so there are, are stakes and consequences to all of these monologues. And when we explore from that perspective, then we find the energy that people have that helps them sustain these long passages. If I have a passion to communicate with you, that helps me find the energy to communicate with you. It's kind of that simple. Um, and it's and then that makes no difference whether it's a line of uh, like one sentence or 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 fifty lines. Absolutely, there is with the fifty line long moment generally a reason why people continue to speak. So one of the things we explored as we were rehearsing was why does the character need to continue to speak? And that again helps find energy to continue the passage. Usually it's about, uh, typically people continue to speak in life because they haven't achieved the desired outcome. They haven't won <laughs> or they haven't conveyed their ideas uh, specifically enough or they're not able to measure that they've changed the person that they're talking to. And that's why they tend to go on. And now that's part of it, but that asking that question, why do they need to continue to speak? Now in, in comas, sometimes it's to display their extraordinary rhetorical ability or you know ability with rhetoric. And that can be part of the reason that you speak too. I'm forming an argument. I have a debate. So that was also another interesting part of the conversation in exploring the why of it. So it's never just one answer, but that specificity was part of the fun uh, of the rehearsal process on this piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, now, we were working on this in the end of the summer and uh, early autumn of uh, 2021 when we thought we were near the end of COVID and things were opening up a little, but then it turned out uh, they weren't and it wasn't. Tell our listeners about some of the challenges for the rehearsal process uh, that that created and uh, just how we all worked around all of that. We were really fortunate in that some of the actors involved in Comus live in Stratford, Ontario, where um, I've been based. So we were able to rehearse um, outdoors in person, which was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, it's always best if you can be with people in person. And we were able to do that a few times. Uh, Bethany and Roger and I were able to get together separately, you know, socially distanced outdoors, which was a treat. The other rehearsals we had online, on Zoom. And, you know, there we are 15 months into the pandemic. I, I've been doing a lot of work online by this point in time. I've directed two or three Zoom productions and also done two festivals with um, hybrid activities online. So, 
working online, rehearsing online, everyone's much more familiar with it. So we did good rehearsals online. And, and actually these rehearsals, I spent a lot of time working with people individually. And in this rehearsal process, I kind of borrowed from a Shakespeare practitioner that I worked with in the UK. His name is Patrick Tucker. And uh, he and his wife, Christine Ozan, had a company called the Original Shakespeare Company. And I studied under him. And uh, he, he was one of the people who brought back cue scripts and was involved in looking at the configuration of the new Globe Theatre in the UK. Tell us, tell us what a cue uh, script is. I think we, I've discussed this with somebody else in a previous podcast, but yeah. just refresh our memory. Sure. So we know that Elizabethan actors didn't get the entire script. You know, they received their role, which was literally a role with their part, their section of the scripts written out, and they received the cues, the three feet, da-dum, 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 six syllables, uh, that were their cue, and that's why they're called cue scripts. Mm -hmm. And that was what the actors got to save on the cost of paper, for example. And, you know, plays were not being published in advance of productions. If they were fortunate, maybe they got, uh, you know, publications later. So... Mm -hmm. He brought back this way of working, which brings this extraordinary aliveness to the work. And he also did this process called verse nursing, which uh, in which the director works individually with particular actors, talks about their characters, talks about the approach that the actor is going to have with the role and rehearses with them individually. And the actors actually don't meet in that rehearsal process, the original Shakespeare company process, until mm. performance. So that's pretty much, Whoa. that's almost what we did. We had, I think, one set of rehearsals for Comus where people got together via Zoom. But really, it was on the day when we had our, our, our recording day that everyone was in the room all together, which was uh, fantastic. And I think that actually these, the art of uh, the um, physical parts of the art of rhetoric where you know that people are, you know what gestures people are going to apply to certain texts, that would, ha you would need to do less of that sort of rehearsal where you're deciding which hand to open. The formality of, of, of the 16th and early 17th century would, might help with that, uh, la that lack of rehearsal. Or it wouldn't be a lack because you'd, everything would be more uh, formalized. Do you think that? It's true. Uh, absolutely. I think that my understanding is that the language of gesture was much more, yes, much more known, much more formalized. There was a much more consistent vocabulary. And so the Elizabethan actor would be able to contribute a lot to that in terms of what they're bringing to the party. Mm -hmm. Also, so much of the the physicality of the Elizabethan world, the relationship of different classes, um, hierarchy, royalty, all of those things were so embedded in the Elizabethan mind in terms of you know, how people relate to each other physically. Um, you know, the kinds of gestures that they use, kneeling, bowing, all of those elements were so embedded, so known, that none of that would have to be spoken about during a rehearsal process. Mm -hmm. So that's true for comas as well. I believe. During the COVID times, that's one of the advantages of these uh, long speeches and lack of sort of uh, reactive 
dialogue. When somebody reacts to somebody in comas, they do it for 50 lines. Uh, it, so that's one reason why that's ideal for COVID. You don't need to rehearse all those that snappy dialogue. Yes, the long speeches are very helpful in this regard for rehearsing in the COVID times. Absolutely and completely. And it, the energy that's required for actors to uh, make these long speeches intelligible mm -hmm. is one interesting part of the process as well. These massive complex ideas. And the Elizabethan actor the expectation was that they would be able to hold space for these very complex ideas. We see it in, in Shakespeare as well. We get these very long ideas in monologues where an mm -hmm. idea is introduced and then you'll have all kinds of lateral thought that, you know, lateral thought, lateral thought, lateral thought, subclause, and then we flip back to the original idea before progressing forward again. So the expectation mm -hmm. of the Elizabethan actor and, you know, moving into the beyond that, is that the the actor the the speaker will be able to hold space for these incredibly complex ideas that requires immense breath support but also mm -hmm. extraordinary musicality as well so that was one of the things this is, you yeah, talked about this, having working with worked with singers for decades it's always it's always a problem because the most important word in a sentence is very often the the last word right i want to come to your your what? Your house? Your party? You know, and that's always at the end of a phrase, a musical phrase, and a sentence. That's always where you've run out of breath. So I want to come to your that. That's the word that needs the emphasis. Yeah. So these are particular challenges, and so working with the actors on how to score their breathing, because the contemporary mm -hmm. actor, because of this movement towards short and terse dialogue that's, you know, been around since really uh, the, well, we'll say the 1940s, really starting with American realism. So that movement towards more and more terse dialogue means that the breath capacity of the contemporary actor is just not, uh, this, not similar at all in any way, shape or form to that of the Elizabethan, you know. Okay, so all you actors out there, go and take singing lessons. Absolutely. Or just go jogging and breathe and talk as you jog. You know? <laughs> that too. You could do that as well. Though he probably would be familiar with or would certainly become familiar with the concept of working in the time of plague, um, John Milton would not have had the idea of uh, this is going to go out on the internet and people are going to download it to their little computers that they carry in their pocket and ride on the subway with. Um, so we're doing a modern thing to this old thing. How did you, as a director, reconcile those two ideas of this most modern thing and uh, thing from 1634? Yeah, I think the thing is it's still people talking to people. So you have to try and bring that to life. So because so much of the language is highly mannered and very has these incredibly long th thoughts, I really talked to the actors a lot about bringing a conversational tone to the, to the language so that it had the feeling and the energy of being accessible. So that it felt as though people were making up these words in the spur of the moment spontaneously, or we talk about it in terms of acting. Uh, there's a phrase called fresh minting, <laughs> that the characters are fresh minting these words. They're making them up on the spot, this spontaneity. 
And bringing this sense of aliveness to this highly mannered work helped the actors connect to these characters as individuals. So, how, you know, because they are boys, you know, they're not mm-hmm. men in their 30s who are pontificating. They're boys who are, have a problem and they're trying to figure out how to deal with the problem. So that's the story. So kind of going back to the story, the problem, and really just keying in or getting the actor to think about this is a person who has a problem. They're trying to resolve it. And they're talking to another person in an effort to figure out what to do next. Likewise, with the comus, for example, and the scene between he and the young woman, they're in a debate. Uh, There is a moral debate going on between these two very strong individuals. And so just talking about how are you trying to convince that person that your point is the better point, the best point, so that you get more of what you want? You know, get this woman to drink this potion. You know, so it's highly mannered, um, yet it's highly accessible when we break it down into story beats. And uh, so we spend a lot of time doing that. I mean, I, I, I think it's an extraordinary piece. I, I really do. It's of so much of its time and yet actually it's incredibly accessible really and so I, I i think it was a complete treat to work on it and to to bring it to life you know and it was a it was a lot of fun really having to dive into the language absolutely completely and it's worth it so i i really do encourage everybody to listen to it if they haven't already that was heather davies in conversation with me john edwards Scroll back in the podcast feed to listen to Comus if you haven't already, and you'll also find the dance music we recorded for it. Check musiciansinordinary.ca for Heather's bio and those of our other performers. Subscribe to our podcast for more music and poetry of the 16th and 17th century and more chat about it. And if you would like to help support these podcasts, please go to musiciansinordinary.ca and click through to Canada Helps dot org.